Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 22:66 through 23:5. When the day came, the assembly of elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On a spring day in 1985, Stephen Barnes of upstate New York was taken into custody and questioned about a murder that had happened just 12 hours earlier. He was released later that day as evidence was inconclusive and eyewitness testimony put him somewhere else during the time in question. Years later, he was rearrested for the same murder, tried and convicted based upon vague eyewitness testimony about his truck being in the area, unvalidated forensic evidence presented in court, and what later turned out to be false testimony from a fellow inmate during his incarceration. Barnes was given life in prison. Years later, uh, the Innocence Project took up his case and using modern forensic DNA evidence proved his innocence in the crime. Barnes had already served 20 years in prison as an innocent man. Charles Chapman in 1981 was charged for a horrible crime he did not commit based upon faulty evidence at the time. Again, the Innocence Project took up his case in the early 2000s and proved his innocence to the state of Texas, which exonerated him of all charges. Chapman entered prison when he was 20 years old. He was 47 on the day of his release. He had served almost 30 years in prison. I don't know about you, but stories like that just get my blood boiling. There's something about the innocent being punished for something they did not do that just hits me in this emotionally profound way. This is especially true when it's more than just incompetence or a lack of information, when there is real evil involved, corruption or indifference, like in the recent film, Just Mercy, which is based on a story from attorney uh, Brian Stevenson, don't get me started. Man, that just makes me so angry. You could literally spend all day online finding story after story of innocent people being tried and convicted for crimes they did not commit. And I'm so grateful, seriously, for the work of organizations like the Innocence Project and the Equal Justice Initiative and other groups that do similar work uh, correcting these terrible mistakes around innocence and guilt. We even have some congregants uh, in our church family who work with groups like these that are based right here uh, in Overland Park, Kansas. And that is critical gospel-shaped work. I'm so grateful. 
As unjust as the stories we just shared are, and they are, we are about to look at another story of presumed guilt, of corruption, of indifference, of false accusation, and of evil. And I do not exaggerate when I say that this story is the grossest miscarriage of justice you will ever read. Everybody puts Jesus on trial in our text today. And it will play out exactly as you would imagine, with one major difference. And it's that difference that I want us to pay attention to today. So if you have your Bible near you, turn to Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 66. Jesus, if you remember, has just been betrayed by Judas and has been arrested by the Jewish elders. Uh, They are called the Sanhedrin. Uh, in the other gospels. Uh, Here they're just called the Jewish council or the Jewish elders. These are the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And this group included even the high priest himself. And these in particular are the powerful men who had hated Jesus for some time now, especially when Jesus decided to show up in Jerusalem. And they want him dead. But before they can do that, they need to justify it legally and religiously. They need to catch Jesus in a capital offense according to Jewish law. So they put him to trial before the council after his arrest, and they ask him in verse 67, right? Remember, this is like a trial scene. If you are the Christ, tell us. And they give away their legal strategy here. Okay, They They are going for blasphemy. They're trying to catch Jesus speaking something untrue about God and himself to be, in particular, a false messiah which is punishable by death. Now, Jesus' response here is the most he will say for the rest of this story. He says, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So Jesus already knows where this is going. And he knows the religious leaders are not interested in a conversation with him about whether he's actually the Messiah or not. So he tells them, if I try to convince you, you won't care. And if I try to ask you a question, you won't answer. So I'll tell you what, you know, the son of man in Daniel's vision from the Old Testament, he's referencing the Old Testament book of Daniel. He says, remember the son of man who comes in the power of God? You won't believe me, but that's me. Now the Jewish leaders, they know their Old Testament and they realize what Jesus is claiming. And their case, so their case is almost closed. For the record, they ask, so you think you're the son of God then? You, you think that's who you are? And Jesus says this back, and I, and I love it. He says, you say that I am. That's verse 72. And this is Jesus' way of both affirming, yes, that's who I think I am, <laughs> and of putting, putting it back on them. He kind of says, yes, I'm the son of man, I'm the son of God, but let the record show that you said it before I did. <laughs> So now the religious leaders have their religious case. They've got it. They can claim that Jesus has blasphemed. He didn't, of course, blaspheme because he actually is the Messiah. And if they simply examined the evidence that Luke himself has laid out in his gospel, and remember Luke's gospel begins with, here's the eyewitness testimony about who Jesus is, they would see that Jesus is not a false Messiah, but he will not get his day in court and he doesn't ask for it. But, Even with the religious case closed, that is not enough to get rid of Jesus permanently. Because under Roman occupation, 
the Jewish leaders are not allowed to carry out capital punishment. Okay? Only the Roman government can execute someone. So now they need to make their case to Rome. This is chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him, that is Jesus, before Pilate. Now Pilate, if you're not familiar, was the governor of Judea at this time. He was the Roman ruler. He represented the Roman Empire in this province of Judea. He had a reputation for pragmatism, for brutality, and for violence. We know this from uh, sources outside the Bible, uh, historical sources that reference Pontius Pilate. He, in other words, he was not a light touch kind of leader. He was very hands-on. Uh, now, normally, he would be in Caesarea, which is where the governor lived and where the government or the Roman governor uh, worked. But he happens to be in Jerusalem because of the Passover, because this is the time of year when the Jewish people start dreaming of independence. They go, you know, remember in Passover when we were in Egypt and God rescued us from an evil, oppressive government and we, we became independent, right? All the emotions start stirring and riots and revolts and things like that tend to happen around this time of year. So Pilate liked to make his presence felt in Jerusalem for the feast. And the religious leaders know that Pilate's there and they know that this is a very tense time. They know all of that. They know the stakes are high. And so they play on that. Listen to what they say about Jesus before Pilate. They say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate doesn't care about some obscure text in Daniel that only the Jews care about. So they're not going to go to him with blasphemy. But he does care when religious leaders start slamming Caesar and say, don't pay taxes to Caesar. And he does care when people claim to be a king. Now, we know Jesus said to pay taxes to Caesar, so we know he didn't teach that. He actually said the opposite of don't pay taxes. Uh, but he does claim to be a king. Our whole series is Jesus' kingdom. So Pilate asks him directly, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds as succinctly again as possible. He says, you have said so. Pilate doesn't bite on this whole charade. So he, I think he takes one look at Jesus and he thinks, this guy is probably crazy, but he's harmless. And so he says to the religious leaders, I find no guilt in this man. But the religious leaders are not going to back down. So they're adamant. So they say, no, Pilate, this man is stirring up the people from here, Jerusalem, all the way back to Galilee where he's from. Now, Pilate, remember, wants nothing to do with this. He doesn't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. The last thing he needs is controversy on Passover. He doesn't want an uprising centered around this random guy from Nazareth that ticked off the wrong people. So when he hears the word Galilee, okay, he gets a brilliant idea. He says, Galilee, you say. He's from Galilee. Well, that's King Herod's district. That's King Herod's jurisdiction. And like any crafty politician, he shifts the responsibility and sends Jesus to Herod for judgment. Now, Herod, who is also in Jerusalem for the Passover, was kind of the puppet king under the Roman system. He had some authority in Judea, but it was all subject to Rome. Um, so he wasn't as powerful as Pilate, but he did have power. And he was always, if you read through Luke, kind of fascinated and terrified by Jesus. If you, if you look back, 
He, he shows up several times in the story, and he seems to have a very superstitious outlook on life. So it isn't surprising that when Jesus arrives uh, in front of him, Herod has absolutely no interest in the substance of the case against him, doesn't seem to anyway. He just wants Jesus to do a miracle. He wants Jesus to do a sign. That's verse 8. And he questions Jesus for a long time. But Luke tells us that Jesus does not answer him one word, not one word. Eventually, Herod simply mocks Jesus and says, you're a fool, and he dresses him up like a fake king and sends him back to Pilate. Now, what's interesting here is that Pilate makes a new friend in Herod. Luke Luke points this out because Herod uh, felt that Pilate entrusted him with a big decision. And so they actually become friends because of Jesus, but Pilate is still stuck with Jesus. So he calls the religious leaders back together with Jesus, and he makes his final case. This is verse 14. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So Pilate, who is judge, jury, and executioner in the Roman system, has now said two times that Jesus is completely innocent. But the religious leaders will have none of that, and they start to make a scene. They're getting people riled up, and Pilate is feeling that pressure. They begin asking for a guy named Barabbas, another prisoner, to be released. Now, it was apparently a Passover custom that Pilate would consider releasing a prisoner as a Passover celebration gift. And Pilate is perhaps hinting that Jesus would be that prisoner. He says, I'm going to let him go. But the religious leaders will not have that. They say, give us Barabbas. That's verse 18. Now Luke tells us that Barabbas has tried to start a riot. He tried to start an insurrection and actually killed someone, at least one person. So Pilate has put him on death row. Both of those crimes are are punishable by death in the Roman legal system. So Pilate has to be beside himself now. A third time he declares Jesus' innocence. Look at verse 22. What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. The idea before Pilate from the religious leaders is to literally release a guilty man in order to punish an innocent man, to crucify him. That's the offer on the table. We perhaps shouldn't feel too much sympathy for Pilate, but this moment gets me close. This is a bonkers. He has to be so frustrated, but the crowd keeps ratcheting up. Release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. They say over and over and over, or we're going to riot. And Pilate, again, ever the pragmatist, decides literally that their voice will prevail. That's just how Luke puts it in verse 23. And Luke ends this story just so we don't miss the irony that Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now, what comes next is for next week's sermon, so we're not going to go there. But notice with me that Luke goes out of his way to make sure that we know that everybody in the story knows that Jesus is innocent. Everybody knows, but they kill him anyway. doesn't matter. 
And not just innocent in, in the general sense, but literally Jesus has never sinned. He is God's perfect son. That's Luke's argument all along his gospel. And here at the end, everybody knows, they know Jesus has done nothing wrong, but nobody does anything about it. He gets killed. The story follows the script to a T, doesn't it? I mean, this is, you've got, a, you've got the, the jealous, power-hungry religious leaders who are pushing their agenda. You've got the corrupt, inept, indifferent Roman government. You've got the system designed to deliver justice, but it does anything but that. It just moves the caseload along. There's lies and betrayals and cover-ups. There's all of it. It reads just like a story we read at the beginning of this sermon to a T, except one glaring difference. Have you spotted it yet? The difference in this story to all those other stories. There's one thing, if we're paying attention, that makes no worldly sense to me at all. Put yourself in Jesus' place. What would you be doing all along this story? I know what I'd be doing. I'd be arguing. I'd be yelling. I'd be screaming. I'd be weeping. I'd be pounding the table. I'd call witnesses. I'd call the lawyer. I'd gather evidence. I'd appeal to Pilate. I would do a magic trick for Herod. Anything and everything I could possibly do to prove my innocence or to win someone's favor, I would go to the cross kicking and screaming. You probably would too. Jesus barely says a word. Barely a word. He's almost completely silent in all of chapter 23. And when he does speak, it is never in self-defense or argument. It is always in agreement. <laughs> when Jesus does reply to the prosecution, he simply says, yes. Yes, your honor. That's it. What in the world? Why is Jesus silent? Why is he doing what we would never do? Okay, three things that stand out to me here about Jesus' silence. First, Jesus' silence confronts the powerful. It confronts them. In every interaction with human institutional power, it is clear how Jesus is perceived. Okay, the Sanhedrin think they've got him in their crosshairs. This thing is over. Jesus' innocence or guilt is just a formality now. We've got him. We have the power now to get Jesus killed. They believe that. They never doubt that. From Jesus' arrest to his crucifixion, it's never in doubt. He even makes it easy for them by quoting Daniel as he did earlier. He gives them the smoking gun that they need. You see it again before Herod, right? Who says, Jesus, I can save your life. If you just dance, monkey, just do a sign. Do something for me. Jesus does not speak to him a word, not a single word. And you see it perhaps most strikingly with Pilate, who's the most powerful and influential character in the story. From a worldly perspective, if Jesus is going to survive the next 12 hours, this is the guy he needs to impress. If he's ever going to be released, this is the moment to make his case. And when Pilate sees him, he asks, are you the king of the Jews? And in the Greek, the you is, is, is early in the sentence, which gives, gives it a sense of, of shock or sarcasm. It's more like, you're the king of the Jews? You? Really? Pilate sees nothing in Jesus like the power that he himself has. He doesn't see a king. 
here's this poor, homeless Jewish man outwitted by a bunch of old religious geezers and completely at Pilate's mercy. That's what Pilate sees. Only John's gospel in chapter 18 gives us a window into how Jesus looked at Pilate. He records more of the conversation that the two of them had. And I can't and I won't do a whole sermon on that text, I promise. But when Pilate questions Jesus in John's gospel, Jesus gives just a hint, just a hint why he is silent before his accusers. He says pointedly to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' silence confronts human power. That's what Jesus means. All these politicians and kings and councils, Jesus knows they're playing checkers right now, right? They've got their plan. They know what they're doing. That's the limit of their power. It's a checkers game. Jesus is playing chess. He's playing a totally different game. They're thinking about their little corner of the world. Like, how are we going to keep Jerusalem? How are we going to keep power in Jerusalem? How are we going to keep power in Judea? How am I going to keep power in Galilee? That's all they care about is saving their own little slice of control, whatever that happens to mean to them. Jesus is trying to save the world. He's fighting a cosmic battle. That's why he says nothing to them, because they can't help him do anything. They have nothing to offer him. The irony, okay, don't ever miss this, the irony of Pilate and Herod and whoever coming to Jesus and saying, listen, Jesus, I can help you here. I can save you. Just give me something to work with. I don't know how Jesus didn't just laugh. Like, you think your governorship can help me right now? Save me? You think you can save me? I'm going to save you. <laughs> Jesus still confronts power like this. He humbles it. He, he puts it in its place. Jesus is always in control, even when things look very out of control, as they do in this story. Our kingdom, our kingdom, if we are followers of this king, is, is not of this world. Our battle is not of this world. And following Jesus in his model of power into suffering, into misunderstanding, into service and humility, even of those who fundamentally disagree with us, is exactly the kind of power Jesus wields in his kingdom. And it often looks nothing like the kind of power the world tends to have and wield. We should look like Jesus because Jesus' silence confronts the powerful. Jesus' silence also condemns the world. Second point, Jesus' silence condemns the world. Luke shows Jesus being moved in and out of these spaces, these different interrogations, and he's just saying nothing or very little. But everybody else is talking. There's all kinds of talking going on. Talk, 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 talk. You notice that? Jesus is silent. Everyone else says stuff. Now, we know Jesus is brilliant. He's powerful. He's supernatural. We know because we've read the rest of this gospel that none of these people represent a threat to Jesus. But he just lets them talk. Doesn't address them, right? Doesn't argue with them. You know, trial, lawyer, trial, trial lawyers will, will um, tell you that sometimes the best strategy, the best thing to say to a hostile witness is absolutely nothing at all. You just let them talk. Just get them talking and let them talk. Let them fill in the silence. Let them condemn themselves with their own words and their own actions. Luke, again, he loves irony. He loves irony. And by the end of the story, everybody else looks so guilty. 
And Jesus looks more innocent than ever. The Sanhedrin are liars, and they know it. Herod is a fool. Pilate is weak and a coward, right? He's just afraid. And you begin to wonder when you really think about it, who is on trial here? Who, who's, whose example are we really examining? Is it Jesus? Or is it everybody else? Whose hands are dirty and whose hands are clean? And then you've got to ask, well, what about us? Is there anything in this story we haven't done to Jesus in our own way? Have we never betrayed him or denied him by our action or our inaction? Have we ever lied to him or about him? Have we ever ignored him when it's inconvenient or impractical for our career or for our reputation? Are our hands clean? Other than Jesus, there is no innocent character here. Even the reader, even you and I, that's Luke's point. The whole world, the Jews and the Gentiles, the powerful and the weak, the leaders and the crowds, everybody put Jesus on trial that day. The world put him on trial and condemned itself and killed him. That's the irony. And Jesus allows it. He allows it to happen. Now, here's the real question that's driving everything else. If Jesus is so powerful and the world is so guilty, why stay silent? Why stay silent? Why? Luke gives you just a hint here. Jesus' silence does one last thing in our text. Jesus' silence saves a sinner. Saves a sinner. Give us Barabbas. That's the cry. And Jesus doesn't disagree. Doesn't say a word. Now, Barabbas, Barabbas, which most scholars agree, means son of the father. That's what his name means. Bar, son of Abba, father. A son of the father, on death row, condemned and guilty. Guilty of rebellion, of insurrection. Guilty of violence and murder. And Jesus willingly, silently exchanges his innocence for that man's guilt. And Barabbas does nothing to deserve this. We don't hear a word from him. It's a gift from death row to total freedom. Like that. If we're meant to hear our voices in the crowds who call for Jesus' death, which I think we are, we are also meant to see ourselves in the release of Barabbas if we put our faith in Jesus. The prophet Isaiah predicted this. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's verse 7. Now back to verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus, the most innocent, the most powerful being in the universe, does not use his voice to condemn. He uses his silence to save. Now, we don't know what happened to Barabbas after that moment. We never hear from him again. Though it's interesting to me, I'm hopeful for him, that Luke knows his name. Did he become a follower of Jesus? We don't know. But there's no way... He did not leave this moment a changed man. There's no way. How could it not? 
And when we begin to see ourselves in this, when we see Jesus' silence saving not only Barabbas, but all sons and daughters of the Father who see Jesus for who he really is, well, then we begin to understand the old hymn. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Jesus' silence, among everything else that it did, it changed one life forever that day, and it has the power to change every life. And it can change yours too.